Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. I am thrilled to be back from a quick post-Halloween decompress and back on the trail of Bigfoot. Thanks to all who tuned in for the live stream, caught the replay on the back end of it. Uh, it, it was such an exciting experience doing a live episode and uh, already planning for the next, y'all. So, you know, stay tuned. Uh, today's show was kind of a last minute switch up. The original plan when sketching out the season was to spotlight a particularly intriguing creature and its legend, the Beast of Boggy Creek, a.k.a. the Falk Monster. And we are still indeed spotlighting this swampy Sasquatch, but the stars aligned, and uh, your girls got some help today from someone you might say wrote the book on the Falk Monster. No, really, he, he wrote the book on the Falk Monster. Uh, we will bring this uh, very insightful and knowledgeable and very exciting guest on following a word from today's sponsor. Attention, basketball fanatics. It's game time. Make your grooming game a slam dunk this season with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra from Manscaped. This trimmer is your new MVP thanks to its next-gen dual skin-safe blades. The Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra knows how to deliver that nothing-but-net feel, baby. Don't be the guy who fouls out in the grooming department. Be the guy who takes that game-winning shot and score 20% off and free shipping with code PNG at manscaped.com. Get the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra and get your grooming game in championship form today. It's the middle of November, y'all. This is the time of year it occurs to me that perhaps I should get my Christmas shopping done early. And then the week before Christmas arrives and I am scrambling. Dudes, I know I'm not alone in this. Not this year, though. Mm -mm. No. Think of all of the loved ones in your life who need to toss out the old razor and elevate their grooming game this holiday season, yourself included? Who says you can't get yourself a gift this year? The Lawnmower 5.0 is a gift that keeps on giving, y'all. Hmm? This trimmer is enhanced with next gen dual skin safe blade heads for the perfect assists. Hmm? Take a little off the top with the skin safe trimmer blade or go as smooth as a jump shot gliding through the net with the foil blade. I am such a fan of the foil blade. I, I'm a fan of both blades, of course. The, the lawnmower is a rad little machine, but the foil blade, it's it shaves so smooth. Dudes, Lee and I have both tested it out. And that has been the result every time that we've used it. But I do like with the Lawnmower 5.0, you have uh, the choice, you know, between the two blade heads so you can easily get the result that you're after. A little off the top, smooth. A little off the top, 
Smooth. Dribble. Slam dunk. Swish. There's my basketball metaphor for you. Whether you get it for your game bros, your partner, yourself, with the gift-giving season on the horizon, you got this one in the bag, guys. Come on. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. Don't miss out on the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra for your grooming needs. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code PNG. Today's guest is a well-known researcher and author in the Bigfoot world who has written many acclaimed books, including one I picked up early on for research, The Beast of Boggy Creek. He has appeared on Destination America, Animal Planet, A&E, featured in shows like Monsters and Mysteries in America and Finding Bigfoot. He has guested on well-known podcasts and radio programs such as Astonishing Legends and Coast to Coast AM, and he can be heard narrating several small-town monsters documentaries, speaking at cryptozoology conferences across the nation, or weaving tales of creepy and legendary creatures and cryptids on his podcast, Monstro Bizarro. Please enjoy my conversation with Lyle Blackburn. Well, um, people call me a monster hunter, but uh, that's just a catch-all phrase for a guy who researches uh, creatures that are said to exist but unproven. And I'm sure people all know, you know, Bigfoot, Mothman, Lake Monsters, Chupacabra, all that kind of stuff. I've been interested in these subjects since I was a young kid. I got a book in third grade, which had stories of, at that time, Yeti, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. And it sort of blew my mind to think that people could be seeing something like this out there in the real world. You know, not a movie monster, but a quote unquote monster or some some unexplained creature. So uh, I've been a musician most of my life. professionally and and also doing writing in between. And at some point I wanted to write a book and I thought, well, what is my favorite subject? And that was The Legend of Boggy Creek, which was basically a movie that came out in the 1970s that dramatized sightings of a Bigfoot-like creature in Southern Arkansas, not far from where I live in Texas. And by the way, I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and I still live in Texas. So this was a little closer to home and that really captured my imagination. You know, I'd done a lot of hunting with my father and we had camped. We'd even camped in Arkansas. So I was familiar with the territory. And uh, as an adult, I I was like, well, you know, it was the movie was based on a true story. But, you know, what was the true story? Which sightings, you know, were were things that people reported? Was some of it made up? You know, I just didn't really know. So that's what started me on a journey that ended up in my first book, The Beast of Boggy Creek which was received very well. Um, I didn't realize the popularity of the Boggy Creek case, especially among Bigfooters. And at the time, uh, this was at a time when, when finding Bigfoot was just getting started on TV and things like that, that kind of really built the interest. So, uh, you know, that just kind of led me on a path of, well, this is really cool. People love the book. I love talking about these things. So why not write more? So I've, you know, pursued that written uh, now to date 
uh, seven books and done many, many documentaries and television shows and many times talking about the Falk monster, because I guess I've become sort of associated with that. And, um, you know, it, it's something I feel is important to kind of preserve that legacy and also to fill in those same gaps that I was asking originally, you know, this big movie and stuff in the seventies, what, what was true about it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, uh, the book is, uh, it, it's so enjoyable to read like your, your research, it's journalistic, but it's, the research is so thorough and you just bring this story to life and you bring in all these other aspects that, you, you know, you're right. Like I, I didn't know much about it, like going into it. I, I didn't know much about this creature at all. And even some things that I, I don't remember seeing in the legend of Boggy Creek when I watched that movie. Um, so you just, I, I, I don't know. I'm just very, it's very impressive the, the length that you've gone to. And I know you did dive so deeply into this creature and uh, the history, some, some uh, prior history to the creature itself, which I wanted to ask you about. But first, before we do that, um, would you give us the, uh, wh what is this creature? What, what is its story? So essentially what is known as the Falk monster or more popularly probably as the Boggy Creek monster as a result of the movie, was a creature seen in and around the swampy bottomlands near a small town called Falk in southwest Arkansas. And it's right on the border of Texas and close to Louisiana, which is a heavily forested um, hardwood bottomland habitat there. And so for many years, locals along the Sulphur River and Sulphur River bottoms there had been reporting sightings of what we would call a Bigfoot now. But at the time, you know, they people in Arkansas didn't really think about Bigfoot or even know what that was. Um, and these, these um, early reports date back, you know, I've dated them back to the early 1900s, but especially in like 1930s and 40s and 50s and, and into the 60s, this was all sort of something that people knew about. And the creature was described much like a Bigfoot, you know, uh, six to seven feet tall, walks upright on two legs, uh, covered in hair, had sort of ape-like or wild man kind of qualities, but, you know, at, at the same time, you know, hominid hu human type characteristics, which kind of, you know, put it into that people couldn't identify what it was. They would call it a gorilla, but not a gorilla and things like that. And of course, monster. So it wasn't until 1971 in which a family who had moved to Falk for work reported these extended incidents with a creature and it trying to get in the house and then they shot at it and they had some pretty good sight, you know, visuals of it that got in the newspaper in, in May of 1971. So that's when it became more widely known. Um, before that, it was just people circulating these tales among friends and family, if they even were willing to tell. And with that newspaper coverage in spring of 1971, it was followed up by other people having sightings and credible citizens and other things. And that brought forth sort of the old timers that said, well, this isn't the first time that this has been going on. We've been seeing this down here for years. So then it just started building this huge story, got a lot of newspaper coverage and then a would-be filmmaker by the name of Charles B. Pierce, who lived in Texarkana, which is very close to Falk, was reading these 
newspaper reports about this sort of frightening creature down in Falk. And he thought, man, you know, I should, I could make a documentary or a movie. And that ended up um, being the legend of Boggy Creek, which came out in 1972 and went into wide circulation in movie theaters and drive-ins in 1973 and eventually on television. That movie was basically a independently made low budget movie that ended up making upwards of $25 million in the 1970s. And, um, you know, countless people have come up to me and said, Oh, I saw that when I was a kid. So a lot of people saw it and it sort of was influential on a lot of people who then began to research Bigfoot. And, um, so, so that's kind of the story of it. And of course, once it had the movie, it was, world knew people knew it worldwide so it was well beyond newspapers well beyond local sightings and then that just became um kind of an enduring legacy of this boggy creek which still is very popular today yeah well at that time before it hit the mainstream in the 70s was it known at all in the bigfoot world no um you know and, and of course a, a, a concentration of sightings happened in the mid 1960s, which really started to ramp it up um, down there. And at that time, there were there were basically there were no Bigfoot researchers. I mean, this was before the Patterson Gimlin film, and uh, you know, so no one paid attention. There wasn't wasn't a Lyle Blackburn to hear of the story and to go down there and start interviewing people or whatever. It was mostly a guy named Smokey Crabtree, whose son Lynn had a really scary encounter with this creature around 1965 on their property um, that he sort of became the first guy who was the the researcher. And, and he just wanted to kind of prove to everybody that his son really did see this. And he was trying to find out what was this thing lurking in their in their woods. And. So it was pretty much that known to those people who lived along the Sulphur River. And again, not until 1971, until anyone outside of that area even knew about this. Yeah. And that was uh, Lynn Crabtree's encounter. That was in Jonesville, right? Right. And, and Jonesville is a small community there along the Sulphur River outside of Falk. And the, the creature was originally called the Jonesville monster um, among the locals. So it, it's kind of gone through this, these phases of renaming and increasing, you know, public awareness. Um, but yeah, Lynn, um, Lynn sighting was significant because once that happened and then Smokey got involved, Smokey was so much of a woodsman. He began to sort of organize some searches and things. And now it was a little bit more serious in that, uh, you know, people were taking notice of, of this creature. Right. Well, when I read that, uh, I, I think that's the first time I saw a mention of a Jonesville monster was 
in your book. And so that intrigued me. And in true Kristen fashion, I, I tried to go down some rabbit holes. I was like, what, what is this Jonesville monster you say? And then Google doesn't, you know, Google Maps doesn't even pull Jonesville up. Uh, Chat GBT is like Jonesville monster. What? Like, so it, it's, it's very hard to find that information. Um, but you were able to go in, in, in your research and your deep dives, finding those old articles and, uh, you know, getting these local stories that would have never seen the light of day. And that's just incredible. And, and a lot of that was done by going down there and talking to the people who live there. There was no way to document that because, again, those early th things were not in paper. So, you know, talking to Smokey, I mean, I knew Smokey Crabtree and his family and just many people down there. So the way I did it was just keep going up there and kind of earning the trust of yeah. the people and then i'm getting this big much bigger story i'm like oh my gosh this is huge compared to what's in the movie um you know and then sightings that happened after that so so then i realized that this is <laughs> this is huge you know well in your look at the history um were there uh, like Native American tales that go back even further than that? Like I, my, my question here is, is how, do you think there's always been a creature just in that area? Like always? I think, you know, in the general area, you could say, because as far as Native Americans, uh, some of the closest tribes that lived in there would have been the Caddo Indians for which a lake called Caddo Lake in Louisiana and Texas is named for, which is about maybe 40 minutes drive south of Falk. Um, and they had tales or a word for lost giants or some sort of a ubiquitous, hairy, man-like, but not human race of people that lived in the woods, presumably. And, you know, we can only speculate that this this was a bigfoot creature um but then in arkansas you do have articles from the 1800s which talk about sightings of what at the time was called wild men because again big you know the term bigfoot didn't wasn't until 1958 so um there was uh, all those newspaper articles in the 1800s, which talked about a creature that's pretty much described like the Falk monster in, in more of a bigger um, scope, which would have been throughout Arkansas. So if there was a creature, though, living down there in the Sulphur River bottoms before the 1900s, well, there was really nobody per se to even see it or to know of it. So it could have been there all along. And it wasn't really until those early settlers in the late 1800s and then on into the early 1900s, those families that were down there began to report this. So I would assume if we, if we speculate that the, this is a, a population of real creatures, they, they've been there all along. Yeah. Well, something I find really uh, compelling when I'm looking at this Bigfoot subject, I... I like to see the descriptions that are put through in the Native American legends and lore um, and how that correlates with what we are seeing in the modern day. As for modern day sightings, like I, always, I find it very interesting uh, in, for Bigfoot in general, but especially for the Falk monster sightings, all of these stories that start out, I thought it was a bear. 
And then it stood up and then it turned around and then it looked at me. And obviously that's not a bear. So that says to me, it says to me that these people aren't out there specifically looking for it, expecting to find it. And it also says to me that what they saw was a large animal on two legs that definitely wasn't a bear. So all of this, like, like these are all just compelling pieces to me and especially about this creature in general. Um, I do look to the details and you spoke to some of the details about how this uh, monster, I hate to call it a monster, but you know, this monster yeah. looks, uh, a couple of them stood out to me and I wanted to pick your brain about that. One detail is the red eyes. Red eyes is a pretty interesting detail to include. Um, how, how, how often is that reported? Uh, I would say not, not too often, but on occasion, people will say it had red eyes and it, that, that falls into the greater body of Bigfoot reports. I mean, because there's a percentage of Bigfoot reports where people say the creature had red eyes, which is a, it's a problem because, you know, Animals of that nature don't have bioluminescence. Their eye, their no, the eye shine has to be come from reflections and don't typically reflect red. So, the red eye shine is is a strange aspect, and the problem with it is not very consistent. You know, if everybody, if every single witness said, "Oh my gosh, I had red eyes and it was hairy," yeah, okay, but the fact that it's occasionally reported. It's just hard to figure out if that's a certain condition that caused the reflection to be red eyes or, you know, they could have had a lantern. There could have been moonlight or other sources. And surely they could have very well seen something that was red, uh, but it's just hard to, to know why that is and why everybody wouldn't report it. Of course, not everybody sees it at night. So, but there's, there's a good amount of night sightings and a lot of witnesses just say they saw it, but they, they didn't see uh, reflective eyes. Okay. Okay. And well, the other <laughs> detail, and I'm picking on these two particular details for a reason I'll, I'll, I'll bring up in a little bit. Uh, the other detail is the three toed print. That is a, a, a strange one to me. I, I, I've heard you speak on it as well. It's, it's a strange detail. Um, I think uh, it was Jeff Meldrum. You might have said this on an interview. Uh, Jeff Meldrum had said that he had not yet examined a three-toed print that he, he found convincing, right? Um, uh, where does, my, I'm just curious, where does the connection between the three-toed print come in with the Falk monster? Like how, how are we saying that it actually belongs to that creature? Right. I'm, I mean, it, it can only be assumed that it does. It was, it was the three toed track was first mentioned in that very first article on May 3rd, 1971, when the Ford family, which is in the legend of Boggy Creek, if somebody's seen that, it's the climactic scene where the family's in the house. That was all based on a real reports, and then those people were real. Um, in that article, they had seen some faint tracks in and around the house, and it was mentioned that they appeared to have three toes. Just a brief mention. Well, then on June 13th, 1971, not long after that, uh, there was a, 
a guy in a soybean field near Boggy Creek that came out there one day and found this huge line of footprints going across across that plowed bean field. And they were these, it was like kind of like a Bigfoot track, but only had three toes. They were big tracks. And so because the creature had been seen up and down Boggy Creek a lot of times, you know, it was basically just speculated that this was the creature uh, that had made these prints. And there was some various opinions from the, from uh, the game warden and some of the news personnel and even Smokey Crabtree and the people that were on site as to whether these were real or they were a hoax or just what it was. And that scene is in the legend of Boggy Creek. So of course, you know, the creature to, to the mass public has three toes. But the tricky part is, is that there's, you know, been other footprints found, four toes, five toes, all sorts of stuff. And logically, a three-toed track for a thing that stands seven foot tall and weighs 400 some odd pounds, three toes is not something that's going to provide a lot of balance. So it doesn't seem like nature would intend that. And we, of course, primates have you know, five digits, we have five toes and that kind of thing, which makes more sense. So th- then it was speculated that, well, maybe this individual had a deformity or was injured, you know, which could very well be because, you know, if there's a small population, in- inbreeding could t- could happen. And when you do that, the, one of the first places that that manifests is in loss of toes and fingers and things like that. You know, so that one individual, if that's even the Falk monster, but I don't base, you know, because there's been other tracks and other things, it's, you know, that just the one incident to assume that that was the Falk monster is, is taking a kind of a leap and attaching something that doesn't seem very biologically sound. And that's why Jeff Meldrum um, is going to say, well, he's you know, a lot of the three-toe tracks I've seen are just kind of not, not great examples, even that old track from Boggy Creek, because those people didn't know how to cast tracks, really. I mean, a lady came down there with plaster of Paris and poured it in there. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a messy track. I mean, there's a photo of it, and it kind of looks suspect. So I'm, I'm not sure about that, and, you know, I wasn't there to examine it myself. Um, but it does create just another part of this puzzle that you're like scratching your head, you know, what, how many toes does it have? Cause it really have three toes. <laughs> well, so there, but there have been, uh, five toed tracks found in the area. Are they, are they still finding those today? Yes. Um, there was a, a really good five toed print found, in 2006, um, down in, in those swampy areas down there by a guy that I've since gotten to know, that's a pretty credible print and looks very, it's large and looks Bigfoot-esque. There's other guys that have um, gotten some, it could be tracks out of there. Um, I've seen a five-toe track, but it was very muddy um, and hard to say it looks like a bear something barefoot something human-like and something very big and it was actually chasing a deer to the sulfur river that appeared to have five toes Hmm. 
Hmm. I've even seen a, what looked like a three-toed track, but a lot of, you know, it could be a partial print. I only saw one because it's the ground is hard as a lot of leaf debris and stuff. So unless it steps in the mud and the hogs don't then tear up the track, you may find a pristine track, but it's, it's kind of hard to leave tracks down there. So um, there's not a lot of tracks, but there are some, and there are some five toed. Okay. Um, well, have there ever been any photos or videos of this thing, even just allegedly alleging that it's it? I've, I have seen, I have never really seen a good video. I've seen alleged photos, some, most of them too blurry and obscure to even bother with, in my opinion. They're not getting us anywhere. I saw one that was pretty clear, but to me, I think it's a hunter. But at the distance, again, hard to tell exactly what it is so i mean to date basically i've never seen a photo or a video that i could would give it a high rating to to say yes mm-hmm. that that is the creature okay are sightings still taking place today yes um i have you know a log of sightings that are fairly consistent you know you get half a dozen a year at least um and that's been continuing you know a lot of people thought it after the 70s happened you know just sort of there was the movie and all this stuff everybody sort of thought "Eh, the thing just just disappeared or people lost interest but behind the scenes uh when i started talking to people in the town they would point me to people and say oh you know this guy you should talk to he had a sighting back in the 80s or something like that and those were some very compelling sightings and you know those those established that well this wasn't just some uh concentrated thing in the in the 60s and 70s or whatever and then by the 90s and on past that you started getting bigfoot groups online that people would report sightings to so then there became a new place that would log these and then when i went up there i found numerous other sightings that no one had ever you know reported or anything which up until that that book goes up until 2010 was where I left off when I turned in that manuscript Mm -hmm. and there's been sightings for the last what 13 years there's been a ton more um since then so yeah it's it's something that that keeps going okay so it it doesn't sound like it's slowed down much at all no it's fairly consistent you know and it ranges among locals having sightings and you know even Bigfoot researchers and other things reporting sightings um, and other things, you know, vocalizations and, you know, people claiming they heard wood knocks or what have you. So it's all manner of Bigfooty type things going on. And I've, I've had several experiences down there that um, were, uh, I, you know, scary or, or things that keep me sort of primed to the, to the fact that there could be something down there that we don't know what it is. Ooh, uh, would you would you share some with us? Sure. Um, so what, part of my books are, are obviously a journalistic approach, you know, documenting historical reports and interviewing people. But 
I can't really bring the book to life unless I go to the places where these things happen. And of course, I'm interested in this and grew up as a hunter. So I've spent a lot of time down there on the bayous and sulfur river bottoms myself, camping, canoeing, uh, looking for tracks and all that. Um, one, one of the spookier things happened um, <clears throat> about 10 years ago. Myself and a research partner were down there and we were camping overnight in what's known as Mercer Bayou. And we were camped, we were kind of camp, our tents are kind of up on a hill because in that bayou channel, there's a lot of alligators and all, all that kind of stuff. And so it was about midnight and we, we would take the canoe and just canoe up this bayou channel. Get, you get way up back in there. And when I say there's nobody out there, there's literally nobody out there. I mean, you're in a swamp at midnight, we'll paddle, you know, way up there. Um, and we hear this, all of a sudden we hear this howl um, coming you know, rising up. And, and when you're paddling up those canoe in the canoes at night, there's a lot of ambient noise, bullfrogs, insects, you know, the noise of the paddle going through the water and the duckweed. So we, we kind of stopped like, what was that? You know, like trying to gauge what kind of animal. And, and about 45 seconds later, this thing howls again. And it was just kind of a roar, a roar to a howl type thing. And both myself and my partner were like, I, I don't know what that is. It's definitely not a coyote. It's not, I mean, animals make a wide range of noises, foxes and cougars. And there's all kinds of stuff down there. But we could rule those out, I suppose, just based on what, what we heard. And then it did it again. And we figured it was about maybe 70 yards away um, from what we could gather. Well, it did it three times. You know, the hair stands on up on the back of your neck and you're just in the middle of nowhere. And it's like, what, what was that? You know, well, it, it didn't do it again. Um, and we waited for, you know, 15 minutes or whatever, kind of sitting there. And then, I uh, mean, I don't think it's gonna, it's gonna do it again. So, so we, you know, we start talking and we start heading back down to the campsite. And about the time we got back to that campsite, we pulled that canoe up there and all of a sudden, we got up on the top of that hill and which is in, in a very big hill. And we hear that same howl right there, uh, basically across from the, from the canoe. And it was loud. And I was like, Holy, you know, caught off guard, but I, I grabbed a light and just ran down that hill trying to see what it was. I just was like, I'm going to do or die. I want to see this thing. <laughs> and, uh, it, it moved so fast, whatever it was, it just moved. And, and then it howled again about 50 yards away within just a short time. I mean, it moved fast. And, you know, of course, I, I couldn't see what it was. And then it kind of moved further and howled again. And then it was just silent. That was pretty spooky and kind of speculating that this thing had heard us or approached us and sort of followed us down as we canoed because the bayou channel is very like snaky. So you don't you know, it's not a straight line. You're not moving very fast because you're having to do the the switchbacks almost. And so it, something could easily flank you in the forest with no problem and keep up. But um, that was spooky. And then um, in 2021, I was in that same area where we like literally right there. I was there in the daytime with two other people and I saw something about 75 yards away across that channel 
first I thought shadows in the leaves or the wind blowing. I saw movement and I was just looking and I saw something that was reddish in color just move or walk right across this clearing. And it was huge. And it, it just disappeared out of view. And I, I, I can't say it's 100% was the creature, but people, there's no people over there. I've never once seen a person over there. That's public land. You can't, I couldn't get over there because there's the bayou channel and there's alligators and stuff in there. You, you can't really cross on foot. Um, and the, here, here's the kicker is, no, you can't make this stuff up. We had been in town um, at this place called the Monster Mart about 20 minutes earlier. And one of the locals said, I, I think I saw the creature within the last month. I was driving down this one road. He said it ran across the road. He said to me, it, it was very orangish red. He goes, I would say it kind of looks like an orangutan. Oh. I just took the sighting or whatever, just like any other and said, yeah, okay, cool. Not the first person that said it was reddish. And then I, no kidding, 20 minutes later, I see this red something move across, which wasn't very far from where he said he had seen it. So, mm-hmm. whoa, that's, that's a pretty specific uh, way to describe it, though, like that coloring. And then it was huge. So, you know, we, we, we can say like escaped orangutan, you know, people can say that, whatever. But like these these creatures that people are seeing are described as humongous, huge. Um, that's just incredible. So you might have seen your your first uh, your first uh, Sasquatch skunk ape. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. And I mean, I wish I, I was closer to it or I wish I could have again pursued it. But both times it's occurred across that channel. Um, not that you, you know, they're, they're, these sightings are so brief and unexpected. People are like, well, how come you don't have a picture? It's like, literally, it was like, I just watched it, bump, 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 and it was gone. There's no time to get out the camera. I'm just trying to observe what I see as long as I can observe it. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to claim 100% that was a Bigfoot, but again, this is in a place where I'm extremely familiar with. And the guy that was with me, he's been going down there for 20 some odd years. You know, we know the pattern of reports and how many people, and we've never seen a person over there. Um, There's no hunters or hikers. There's no people out there. It's, It's a long way back in there to get to this. It's just a dirt road. There's no no throughway, there's nothing. And the, we camp there because it is totally off the grid. You have to know where that is. Um, you know, and I'm not, a, it's not a public campground. It's, it's nothing like that. So yeah, in, interesting stuff. And all I can do is say, well, seems like there's something to this. I'll continue to talk to people and I'll continue to go and, you know, explore that area. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Like, it's so inaccessible. Like, if it's some dude out there in a suit or trying to hoax people on the off chance that they're going to get seen, boy, they are risking it big time, especially in that area. I I lived in the South for a few years there. I was in uh, Louisiana. 
Uh, which which brings me to my my next questions here. I'm going to try to make sense of this. So, as I was reading about uh, the, the the historical aspect of it and and the Jonesville encounters, the ones that you found, um, and the descriptions throughout the book of things like the three toed prince, things like the way that it smelled, the the ultra shagginess of it, and then the period of time that uh, it hit the mainstream and that this was all kind of like really reaching a climax there, it reminded me of a local, of my own local lore. When I was in Slidell, I was about two miles away from Honey Island Swamp, the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which you did an amazing episode about, um, just incredible. Um, But I was just curious because it got me thinking about like connections. And I was wondering if you have put um, any thought into like a connection between these differing states, like Southern states, monsters. Yeah, there's certainly a similarity between those two cases Um, from the sort of description of the creature in that it's a very swampy area. Um, The creature is described, you know, Bigfoot like oftentimes, but little shaggier, hairier, swampier, if you will. Um, Also the three toes, because the Honey Island Swamp Monster uh, is said to have three toes, and that comes from one of the original um, witnesses named Harlan Ford, who then later in 1974 found some weird footprints, which he claimed belonged to the creature and he cast those. They they look they look quite different from the Falk three toed tracks, though. His look more uh, alligatorish, alligator like, uh, a bit suspect as well on the track thing. But um, you know the three toed thing, the monster qualities of it, the fact that um, it's it's sort of off off the beaten path. You know these things are seen in these. Uh, sort of remote and rugged environments of the South. Um, and then, you know, you have locals talking about the sightings. And then over the years, you know, you build up this body of sightings. You know, it's not sighted weekly or any of that, but it's consistent enough to where it seems like there's something there and still there to it. So, yeah, I certainly connect the two. And I mean, it's possible you know these could be the same creature or the same sort of species or population thereof or just coincidental i don't know but interesting for sure yeah well that that brought me to my my last question I'll, i'll ask on this um in your opinion do you think it's it's if these things are real is it more likely that we are looking at like like you take your southern Sasquatch, which has all these similarities, a lot of them share a lot of similarities, uh, dis- distinguishing them from like the Northwest Bigfoot, who is very, it's a very specific look and, and all of that. Like, do you think it's more likely that these are just two, two separate species or maybe the product of evolution? Uh, it, it could be, uh, they're, they're sort of separate species or, or the same. And because of the environment and because of where they live, they've adapted to those areas and become distinct. Um, 
I mean, it's hard enough to speculate that we have one type of species of this undiscovered huge, you know, ape-like creature out there. And then to start saying we have numerous or multiple um, is extrapolating even more, um, you know, improbable sort of scenarios. So it's hard to say um, because because of the biggest problem is the cons- the descriptions are are not very consistent. Even with Pacific Northwest Bigfoot, it ranges in height and color um, and things like that. And down here, you know, it, it, even more of a a wide range because some people say they they've seen them on all fours. They're they're more ape like. You know, skunk apes are said to be even more apish. Mm-hmm. They're said to be smaller. And and some of my colleagues believe definitely that these are more of a uh, anthropoid ape-like creature than traditional Bigfoot. And then you've got honey on swamp monster and fout monster, which are somewhere in between this shaggyish, scary ape thing in the woods and the Bigfoot with a range of colors and debates over how many toes they have. So I find that it's really hard to make any definitive statement. I can only speculate that it, it, I think that there's maybe a couple of variations of these. Um, and because of where they've lived all these years, they've definitely adapted to those environments and then become a, a bit more distinctive by that. So, so it, it kind of keeps it contained, but get, allows for this differentiation between Northern Bigfoot and Southern. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That was a barrage of, of questions and <laughs> coming from a newbie. Um, but I, I really appreciate the uh, education on uh, the Falk Monster and, and my audience sure appreciates it as well. Um, we have a couple of minutes here before our final segment. I, I wanted to uh, give you the floor here, if, if you don't mind. Uh, tell us about Ghoul Town. I, I, I caught a couple of your songs last night and was jamming out in my studio. Uh, t- tell us about your band. Uh, yes, I'm the front man and founder for a band called Ghoul Town. And as I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, I've been a musician all my life. So um, I, I've continued to do that because the band is, I played in a couple of, you know, fairly popular bands and it, it's fun to do and and also helps to kind of bridge the gap between trying to make a living as an author of these kind of books and, you know, nobody pays you to do research. So um, all these things put together allow me the freedom to do all these things. So Ghoul Town is kind of a um, crossroads between Johnny Cash and Rob Zombie with kind of a, a dark Texas sort of vibe. I mean, we don't really have a certain genre. People ask, what kind of music do you play? I'm like, I don't know, go to YouTube and Spotify or whatever. Listen, because I don't exactly know. Um, but it's just something that, that, uh, has come out in, in the way that we present ourselves in the songwriting of me growing up in, you know, basically cowboy country, Texas, and then liking punk and metal and horror movies and spaghetti Western, you throw all that in and you basically get ghoul town. So, um, I, I just got off tour. We did a, a short kind of southeast tour recently and uh we you know we play live sometimes and still release albums so i kind of juggle that with monster honey 
<laughs> awesome. You're you're the coolest. I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> um, so listen. <laughs> Uh, listeners, do check out Ghoul Town. It's it's you're I I don't know how to describe it either, but you're gonna love it. I am the knight. Uh, that I, I really like that one. So we are near the end here. It is time for your final questions, final thoughts, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. First question that I've got for you. Thanks to some awesome chats that you have had with my buddies Tim and Dana of the Bigfoot Influencers podcast, both on their show. And in their awesome book, I understand it that you are a self-trained chef. <laughs> what is your signature dish? Uh, signature? Uh, I would say uh, variations of tacos. I, I do a lot of uh, Tex-Mex kind of cooking. Um, so I, I do kind of a really good mahi-mahi taco because I kind of, kind of in, in my, I kind of try to eat healthy, but I, but I do love things like taco tacos. So I, I do a really good mahi-mahi taco with uh, a roasted corn guacamole on that. And um, so, yeah, it, I, I literally learned to cook back when the Food Channel had actual cooking shows. One day I said, you know, I should know how to cook. And I had a, I guess I had a talent for it because I could watch what they did and I could recreate it or make variations of it. I literally learned how to cook from, from the TV and it's served me well because I, I can just sort of go in the kitchen. You could throw me ingredients and I could come up with something uh, pretty tasty, just, just kind of on the fly. You know, I don't do baking as well. I'm not like cupcakes and stuff. It's, it's all just like, you know, searing things on the on the skillet yeah oh i, I wish i had the talent i'm um, not a great cook i got like three things i make and then that's that's it <laughs> then it's top ramen all right uh second question for you what is another topic of high strangeness that you really enjoy but you don't often get asked to talk about hmm well it's a hard one because I, I love all sort of things, high strangeness. Uh, you know, I, when I was young, I loved ghost stories a lot. I think now as an adult, I, I really like the UFO encounters. Uh, I like some of those, um, the classic ones where people even see or experience aliens like the Pascagoula case from Mississippi and stuff. And I could be a little more of a fan of that because I have to, you know, I concentrate on cryptids and monsters in the woods, but I'm super interested in creepy creatures from outer space, I guess. And so UFOs are something that I really interested in and, you know, I'll watch shows and occasionally read books on that as well. That's awesome. Yeah. I just finished a season on UFOs. I, I, I got bit by the UFO bug. All right. Final question for you. In your opinion, what is the most compelling piece of the Bigfoot puzzle? Uh, well, I would say the, the footprints, the alleged footprints, to be exact. Um, because, you know, with many of these cryptids, there, there is only the sightings. There is no, there is nothing tangible but Bigfoot. And one reason it's not, a, not only more popular, but it's, uh, seems more 
possible is because there are footprints. And among those footprints, there are some really good ones that are very hard to explain away. Um, and I've seen several uh, myself and, you know, my colleague, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, of course, has a great collection. And um, I can defer also to, to the expertise of some of these colleagues to where, you know, you know, there's there's a good number of these footprints that are just like something made this thing, you know, and we don't think it's a hoax. It's it's not a bear. It's not any other known animal. You know, what is that? So so by being able to hold these and display them, it, it gives some a bit more solid uh, grasp on the possibility of these creatures being real. Yeah. All right, Lyle. Um, you want to let my audience know where they can find you, uh, where they can pick up copies of your book, where to follow you online? Yes. So the best place to find out about all my projects is lyleblackburn.com. And my books are available there through my online store. If you like autograph copies, and of course, they're available on Amazon. Um you can see me in many small town monsters documentaries. Small town monsters does a great series of uh, cryptid documentaries. Um, Ghoul Town, you can find Ghoul Town on Spotify and Pandora and YouTube and anywhere finer music is streaming or available. <laughs> um, and I have my own podcast called Monstro Bizarro, which I try to get out episodes occasionally, and that's available also on wherever finer podcasts are casted. <laughs> hey, do you have any uh, public appearances coming up? Any conferences? I do. I will be at CryptidCon in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky uh, next weekend, November 18th. Um, and then next year I have quite a bit. So if you, if you go to lyleblackburn.com, you can find that list because I'm always traveling and I'm always doing various conferences um, when I can. So there's a big list. I know I'm booked definitely a lot next year. Right on. All right. To uh, close up the episode, would you like to leave us with any final thoughts, words of wisdom, or a piece of advice? Well, I, I always like to, to say, just have fun with these subjects. I know people have opinions. We argue about what's what. But honestly, we're all just curious about this and we're trying to grasp at explanations and no, every, everything uh, that people think is valid and we share those and just have fun. Because at the end of the day, we may come out on the other side and not prove one thing, not get anywhere. You know, I got one more footprint, but that's it. Um, so, you know, just have fun with it. Enjoy the mysteries of life. You know, we don't we don't know everything in the world. We, we may think we do, but there's certainly mysteries out there and mysteries still to be solved or enjoyed. So just have fun with the with the subject. Monster hunter, writer, researcher, chef, Lyle Blackburn. Thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you to Lyle Blackburn for joining me on the show today. It was such a pleasure, sir. Listeners, please follow the links that I have included below to learn more about my guest and his work, to find where you can hear him speaking live next, and to pick up copies of any or all of his awesome books. If you enjoyed today's show, 
If you enjoyed today's guest, if you enjoy what I do over here, please consider supporting the show. There are many ways to show support, and they are all super duper easy. You can follow the show on the socials at Paranorm Girl Pod. Subscribe if you're catching this over on YouTube. Rate five stars. Review with smiley faces and hearts and rainbows or a few kind words. I don't know. Those work too. I like those a lot. You can also become a patron and enjoy early access to these episodes and be privy to super top secret developments and major guests before they appear on the show. How cool is that? This will be a wrap on today's episode. I'll see you lot next time. Until then, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.